0: What's up, y'all? And welcome into the Jack Vita Show. I'm your host, as always, Jack Vita. We're back here in action on this Thursday, May 25th, 2023. Almost Memorial Day weekend. Hard to believe. This season is flying by, at least for me. Um, First of all, I want to say before we bring in today's guest, exciting news to share. Uh, I am now doing a weekly column for inside the Phillies uh, which is under the Sports Illustrated umbrella each week I will have my weekly power rankings and then my notes from around the league so I'm going to try to get some notes from today's conversation that I can include in what I'm hearing from around the league and that's why I've got a terrific guest joining us today uh, from MLB.com he's been covering the Los Angeles Angels does a great job Rhett Bollinger Rhett how are you doing my friend I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. This is awesome. It's great to have you here. How long have you been? Uh, I know you did the Twins for a little bit. How long have you been on this Angels beat? Uh, on the Angels since 2019.
1: Uh, previously with the Twins from 2011 to 2018. <clears throat> and before that, um, I was in the LA area with MLB.com uh, from 2008 to 2010. So I've been with the company now since uh, 2008. So it's been it's flown by, but it's been 15, uh, 15 years already, which is
0: amazing. <laughs> So uh, you've had a lot of experiences, fifteen years worth of experiences. I'm curious, how'd you get your start, and what advice would you provide to young people who want to do do what you do?
1: Well, for me, it was something I really started in high school in earnest, working for the school paper. Uh, I realized that, you know, baseball-wise, my career was not going to go anywhere after my freshman year, after getting cut from the baseball team my sophomore year. Um, so I realized why not start writing about my friends instead uh, in the school paper, had some fun with that, and then ended up going to USC. Um, and majored in journalism there, and happened to be there at a good time for their football program when they had you know Pete Carroll and Reggie Bush and Matt Leinart and Lendell White and all those guys. So I was able to cover a lot of those guys and get you know a lot of clips, and you know same thing with the basketball program with OJ Mayo and Nick Young and a lot of guys like that. So it was a fun uh, you know time to be at USC, and it kind of took advantage of that and and wrote for the school paper and got a lot of clips and led to some internships, and then finally got the internship with uh, MLB.com in 2008. And, you know, fortunate for me, I've been there ever since. I know a lot of other journalists kind of bounce around a little bit more. I'm kind of one of the fortunate ones or rare ones that's kind of been in one place, at least one company for a long time. But uh, for me, it was more about kind of getting that experience in college and kind of building up uh, that resume and, and getting clips. And, you know, I think the more you write, I think that's the biggest, you know, advice I can get. I don't care what outlet it's for. Even if it's just your own personal blog, find things to write about and, you know, you'll improve. And I think that's the big thing is just kind of getting, you know, that experience and continuing to read others, especially is definitely a big part of it as well. When you were at USC,
0: did you ever meet
1: Will Ferrell? I did a couple times, actually. One of the times, one of my favorite stories was I was covering uh, USC Cal at Cal up in uh, Berkeley and I was going to go to my seat in the press box um and it was raining that day, and that, that press box at the time, I don't know if it still does, but some of the seats in that press box were actually, like, in the rain because they're kind of out in the open, but mine, luckily, wasn't, and so I went to my seat, and I was like, oh, wow, I got a great seat, and I go to my seat, and Will Ferrell's sitting in my seat. <laughs> at the time, you know, he's my hero, you know, I loved all his movies, you know, old school and all that, um, so I, I, I was like, you know, you're in my seat, and he's, like, oh, hey, and he shook my hand, and I you know, introduced myself as, you know, the, the football reporter, and so he was super nice, and was awesome, but yeah, I can always tell someone. One time, uh, I had to kick Bill Farrell out of my, uh, my <laughs> so, yeah. He was around a lot. It was funny. Him and uh, and Snoop Dogg were probably the two most prominent ones. who were at. Seemed like every football practice, because back then football practice was was fully wide open. I mean, you could be just about you know anyone <laughs> and get in there. So I think it ultimately led to their downfall a little bit, because I think some uh, some agents and some sneaky people that probably shouldn't have been there were there, but. Uh, otherwise, it was a pretty fun place to be, uh, especially back then for sure.
0: Rhett, that's a great story. What do you remember? If you had to guess, do you know what year that was that Will Ferrell was in your seat? It would have probably been 2008, probably, I would have guessed, or 2007 so, or so. I have to look back at the schedule and see when. So, yeah. 2008 would have been right after Step Brothers. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's probably my, <laughs> my favorite comedy. So, yeah,
1: I love that movie so much. So, uh, did we become best friends? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. I love that movie.
0: It is a spectacular movie, it's one of all time great comedies. Um, big, big fan of Step Brothers. It's right up there with um, Happy Gilmore. That's another one. What, what are your other favorite comedies? You got any other?
1: Uh, as a kid, I loved Tommy Boy, a big Chris Farley yeah. fan for sure. Um, yeah, definitely Old School was a good one for me. I, I definitely love Step Brothers a lot as well. Dumb and Dumber was a funny one growing up for sure. Um, but yeah, definitely a Chris Farley guy for sure. That was my He was my favorite on SNL and stuff, especially uh, growing up before he uh, unfortunately passed.
0: So the Angels, Angels are 28 and 23. Five games above 500. Um, and then, of course, there's obviously a lot of conversations with looming about Shohei's future with the organization. Uh, before we talk... Otani and what his future holds. I'm curious, your assessment of this team, is this right around where you thought they'd be? Are they a little better, a little worse than you expected?
1: Kind of right around where I thought they'd be. Um, if anything, they've been maybe a little better in some ways. Um, at the same time, they really hadn't fully clicked until recently. I know we'd seen some flashes of, you know, the, the offense being pretty good early in the year and the, and the rotation had been kind of shaky, though, in some ways. You know, Not quite as um, consistent as it was in the second half last year. You know, last year, the rotation really came together well um, in the second half. You know, Jose Suarez got on track, and Reed Detmers did as well. And Patrick Sandoval had a consistent year last year, all you know, all year. And then Shohei Otani is <laughs> Shohei. So they actually kind of had the semblance of a pretty good rotation coming into this year. And it didn't really work out that way. I mean, Suarez is now injured. You know, Detmers has struggled a little bit. You know, Tyler Anderson, who they brought in on a three-year deal, um, has kind of underperformed. So it's been a little bit of an inconsistent rotation, but now I think it's starting to kind of come together a little bit. Um, Detmer struck out 12 his last start. You know, Anderson threw six, uh, gave up, I think, one over six innings against uh, the Red Sox on Wednesday. Um, so it's starting to kind of click a little bit more and the offense is starting to go. So I think that, you know, this team still has room for improvement, um, but I do think right now they're starting to play some good baseball. They've won a series now against the Twins and the Red Sox. Um, and I think if they can get that rotation to kind of get a little bit back on track, I think they have a good enough bullpen and a good enough offense to at least compete and then and make at least a postseason push.
0: I think they're gonna finish with a winning record this year, which hasn't happened since was it twenty sixteen? Yeah, that was the last exactly. year.
1: Yep, and twenty fifteen was the last time they were in the postseason, yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think this team, what I've noticed, what I've liked is I got to say, I'll I'll say this, actually, I like this team more than the team from last year, um, seasons prior. Um, A couple things that are a little different. Number one, they have a nice mix of some young guys coming in. Zach Neto comes up and he's provided a lot defensively and he's been pretty good at the plate too. Um, Mickey Moniak right now is the story. Like he's, I've got you on at the perfect time. Like, he is probably my favorite story of this week. He's batting 419 with a 1300 OPS, almost a 1400 OPS in 10 games. And this is a kid we were out at spring training. Had it not been for that Brett Phillips major league contract, if they had brought, I don't know, maybe you disagree. If they brought Brett Phillips in on a minor league deal, maybe Moniac cracks that opening day roster.
1: Yeah, I I don't disagree with that. There's definitely a chance of that happening. If, uh, if Phillips didn't have that guaranteed major league deal, Moniak had a great spring. You know, he was he made a lot of swing changes in the off season. Um, you know, he worked hard with uh, Phil Plantier, their their assistant hitting coach, because they both live in the San Diego area. Um, and I think those swing changes have really started to pay off. You know, his stance is a little bit more open, so he's able to to see pitches better and recognize pitches. I think that was an issue for him in Philadelphia. Was I think change ups especially. Really tied him up because he couldn't really tell the difference between uh, the fastball and the changeup with the way he was set up. But I think now he's kind of able to to see those pitches, and then he's swinging, you know, at strikes, which is you know sounds obvious, but it's a big key for him. He's kind of laying off the pitches outside the zone. He's starting to hit those changeups now. Um, you know, he's keeping his head still and kind of you know just kind of reinforcing those mechanics that he's been working on all year. And now I think to the point where he doesn't have to really about them he can just kind of execute and do his thing and he's showing power you know we know he has some speed he's a great defender in the outfielder so he's really putting it all together and he was you know the number one overall pick uh, in 2016 for a reason he does have some skills um and the, you know sometimes the change of scenery can be good we've seen it with him and you know with the Phillies I know they weren't traded for each other but it was a hobby for Marsh but Marsh with his change of scenery has done great in Philadelphia too so sometimes it just works out that way, you know. Moniak's from San Diego area, so he's closer to home. Uh, it's been—he's right. I think it's been a great story, and an underrated story of the season, and, and this week especially. And we'll see if he can keep it going.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the that he was the number one overall pick, and there's a lot of pressure when you play in Philadelphia. Um, you know, it's one thing that's funny. I did talk to him at spring training, by the way. Great guy from my right. interactions with him. Just great attitude, very humble, very genuine, very sincere, and. You know, it's like, right, like some of these guys you talk to and they might they might be nice to the press, but it could just be kind of like, hey, I want you to write good stuff about me with him seem very sincere, very genuine. The one thing he told me was I asked him, I said, does anyone ever has anyone ever mixed you up with Mickey Morandini? And he said all the time, even (laughs) coming over here, people call me Morandini on mistake. It happens all the time. And Mickey Morandini, of course, uh, the second baseman on 1993 Phillies, uh, he ended up being an all-star one year, nice career with the Phillies. So uh, he's no longer in the Mickey shadow. So, yeah, excited for him. And, I mean, Brett Phillips, he just got designated for assignment. Did you Do you know anything about what went into that decision? I mean, he batted, he wasn't hitting. Was it as simple as that?
1: Yeah, he wasn't really hitting. And I think his role on the team was mostly just to be a, a pinch runner and and, you know, kind of a defensive outfielder uh, replacement. So uh, it kind of made sense at that time to get Moniac up there. You know, Taylor Taylor Ward had kind of on character str- or er, er struggled a little bit there um, in the outfield. So at the plate, really not so much defensively. Um, but so they figured they'd make a change with a bunch of right-handed starters coming up and bring up Moniak. Um, it, it made a lot of sense at the time. And I don't think they really knew it was going to work out this well um, because he was hitting really well at AAA too. You know, and so is Joe Adele. I think Adele was considered as well. Um, but with all the right-handed starters coming up, they, they went with Moniac. So obviously worked out great. And really, right now he's played his way into kind of almost a, a starting role here where he's platooning with with Taylor Ward and getting pretty much all the starts um against, you know, the the right-handed starters. And then Ward's getting the starts now against the lefties. So Ward will be there on on Friday with Jesus Lazardo pitching for the Marlins, but um, you got to expect Moniac to be back in there. Uh, on Saturday. So,
0: I mean, right now he's really played himself into a, a big role into this team. And you mentioned Joe Adele. Is there a path for him to get up to the big leagues uh, and get another opportunity soon? If Taylor Ward continues to struggle, could he eventually take that spot?
1: There's a chance you can't rule it out. I mean, Ward does have options. So, I mean, uh, it would be a surprise considering what Ward did last year and we did early this year to, to get optioned. But right now, if they feel like they need to get Taylor Ward swing going and get him more consistent at bats, there's a chance they could send him down and maybe bring up Adele and same thing, kind of platoon Adele and Ward and, and give Adele some chances in right field when Renfro needs a day. Um so yeah, I mean and also you know the other opportunity would be if you know if someone were to get hurt, if someone in the outfield were to get hurt for Trout or Renfro or, or Ward or Moniac, maybe you know, Joe would get that chance. Um, But right now, it's just going to be a thing where he's going to continue to stay down at at AAA and get his work down there. He's obviously hit really well with a lot of power, continuing to work on his defense, which has definitely improved. So it's a good sign. You know, it's good to have depth uh, down there because that was the biggest problem last year. You know, we talked about that roster. You said it was a better roster than last year. And you're right. I mean, there's just a lot more depth. I mean, just, you know, to bring in guys like Renfro now and Urshela and Drury um, to, to add to this mix. And then you bring up young guys like Zach Neto. Like you said, it's really solidified that defense and it's starting to show more power. All of a sudden, now you've got more depth. And then last year, that was their biggest issue was when they had injuries and other guys not perform, they didn't have anybody to step up. Um, and this year, it's been a completely different story where they actually have a, a kind of a more legit major league roster.
0: Yeah, and if Anthony Rendon can come back and if he can stay healthy, I mean, that's a... Right this season, 300 batting average, 415 on base, very good defensive third baseman.
1: Rendon is, yeah, you know, he said the on-base percentage speaks for itself, you know, his strikeout to walk ratio especially. He was starting to show a little bit more power there. I know early in the year it didn't really show as much power, but I think some of that was because of another injury. I think he was hit pretty hard there on the shoulder, the left shoulder by a pitch uh, that kind of sapped some of his power. He was still able to hit singles and, and, and get on base. Uh, but I think now that he's he's more healthy in terms of the upper half, now it's just about getting his groin um, healthy, which should happen here in the next. He should be back, I'm guessing, by next week at some point. And he's kind of got to cut down on those errors. He's had too many errors at third base. But otherwise, you know, he makes spectacular plays. There's a good defender there. It's just he's got to cut down on those errors. And I, I expect him to do that. And if he can do that, then it definitely helps that infield uh, defense a lot. Do you think the AL Central should have to forfeit its playoff spot this year? <laughs> it's pretty rough. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, somebody used to cover that division. Um, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, right now, too, we're kind of seeing what happens with the new schedule, too, right? Now they don't just get to beat up on each other and beat up on the you know the Royals and the Tigers like they used to in the past. I know the Tigers are a little bit better this year. But, yeah, it's a rough division right now. I mean, the Twins, they can really pitch, though. I'll give them that. Their, their rotation – is solid, and I think it's enough for them to be the best team in that division. But you know, the Guardians have really fallen off here. The White Sox are playing better, but they were in such a tough hole there. I don't know if they'll be able to get out of it, although they're only what like five and a half back, so yeah, you can't rule them out really at this point. Um, yeah, it's got to be one of the worst divisions kind of in modern, uh, in modern most recent years because really you, you could even see a thing where all those teams finish, you know, below 500. Although I do think <laughs> the Twins. Have the pitching to, to potentially uh, be a decent team, and maybe they'll add a, a batter or two at the deadline. Um, but you're right; so far, this division in the Central has been pretty rough. Whereas, you know, in the East, what every team was above 500 at one point, and it's a completely different story than the Central. So, uh, we'll see how it goes the rest of the way. But so far, it's been pretty rough for them.
0: Yeah, I'm still waiting for Cleveland to turn it around. They're seven back in the loss column right now, which does not feel right at all um i mean this team can get healthy and if they can maybe heat up as it starts to warm up outside i'm waiting for that to happen i've i made the comparison before i do think that if i'm not saying i expect it to happen but cleveland could be like the Braves from 2 years ago where maybe they pick up a couple guys at the deadline on the cheap just a couple of you know bats that they need to get their jump start their offense um and because their division is so weak You're seven back right now in the loss column, but you're only four and a half games out. So if you can just hang around, I don't think Minnesota is going to run away with that division unless they really go on some big hot stretch. But um, I think there's a path for them to heat up, get on a run, and find their way back in the playoffs.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, the Guardians have been a team in the past um, that have found ways. You know, they've a team, truthfully, that's really kind of been slow starters historically, too, for whatever reason. Yeah. So, they've they've done it before. They've been a slow starting team and then kind of got on track. Um, But they're going to have to hit, though. You know, right now, we just saw them in Cleveland and Josh Naylor uh, hit for power for them against the Angels three straight times in the eighth inning, which was pretty rough for the Angels. But other than that, uh, the Guardians looking through their lineup just don't really have much power. You know, Ramirez is coming off. He's got that ham eight bone injury that I think has kind of hurt his power a little bit. And then Josh Bell hasn't really clicked the way they hoped he would. So last year, they kind of got away with it because they were able to put the ball in play a lot, get a lot of singles, and kind of run their way into a lot of runs. And this year, they're not really doing that either. And I think maybe the you know, it just hasn't really been their year. Some guys last year had career years, it seemed like, and to have them repeat it just hasn't really happened. So um, there's the chances, you know, these guys kind of get it going because of their track records. Um, but at the same time, it's just this, this season's kind of gone south here so far recently, and their rotations not hasn't been quite as good. They're... Leading on some rookies. Um, and the question is if they fall out, you know, would they trade Bieber? I mean, that's going to be the big thing, you know, because this organization, we know they're not a team that really ever extends or signs too many of their, of their stars, especially not pitchers. So they have to play well, or else they, you know, they might have to trade away a guy like Bieber, who's definitely in the race.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens there. I mean, that could be like maybe Bieber ends up being the next Kluber or Clevenger where they deal them and they just keep bringing up more guys from oh, the pipeline. Yeah, they're amazing
1: that way. <laughs> they always just develop these guys out of nowhere. They come up, and this Tanner Bybee guy we saw, same thing. It's a local guy. He's actually from uh, the L- L- L.A. area or Orange County area, and uh, you know, just just turned into this you know rookie ace all of a sudden. Uh, these turn these guys out. I don't know. They, they always have like a factory or something. They just like turn these guys out. I think every organization in baseball is just totally envious of the way the Guardians just draft these guys fourth, fifth round. Doesn't even matter, and turn them into studs right away. So. That's
0: the one thing they can do, but it's just now I think about fixing that offense. The four best teams as it comes to drafting and developing talent Cleveland, Tampa, Houston, Los Angeles, Dodgers. Is there anyone else that's in that echelon with those teams? Uh, the Braves. Braves, okay. yeah. Yeah. Braves. I think it's with
1: Michael Harris and these guys they brought up, Strider too. Spencer Strider was not supposed to be this good. Um, so, no, they've had a lot of, they've had some guys kind of fall off and, but they're still a really good team, and yeah, they develop and, and really do a good job of that too. And they've had some guys really pop up and be ready right away. Um, so I would say the Braves are in that mix as well. But I, I'd say those five are the five for sure that um, that make the most sense to me. It's the best at drafting and developing and, and bringing up young guys and having that pipeline always kind of flowing.
0: Yeah, I don't. I think those five. I I did forget to mention the Braves. I'm glad you brought them up. I don't really think there's anyone else that does it anywhere close to as well as those five do.
1: No, I don't think so either. I mean, not not to that extent, no. Those teams really, it's amazing the stuff they're able to do with that. And even the way the Astros last year were able to, to win the World Series with, you know, and Pena being the World Series MVP after they lose Correa, it shows you how they can do that. But right now the Astros are in a little bit of a tougher spot because their rotation, they didn't really address it in the offseason. And I know they do have some young guys they're counting on. Um, but I do think that's kind of hurt them a little bit and why they're not in first place where they usually are. Um, and the Rangers have done a good job of, of, you know, kind of developing some guys, but also, as we know, bringing in some some free agents, which has really paid off for them, you know, Simeon and, and Seager and their new rotation. So um, we'll see how it kind of goes the rest of the way in the AL West. But I do think the Astros are a little bit less, less depth than they usually have. But I do think they'll continue to, you know, develop guys and then have that going forward in general.
0: Yeah, Houston's not going to win 106 games this year, but I still <laughs> think they're going to win the division.
1: Yeah, it wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't shock me. That was my, you know, preseason pick for them to win the division again. But maybe the Rangers hold on. I mean, they're kind of a fun team and it's just going to be about the Rangers' health of their starting pitchers, right? Like pretty much every starter they have has injury, you know, concerns in the past. You know, whether it's, you know, the, you know, Teeny we, we had here in Anaheim and he's had injury concerns in the past. And, uh, you know, DeGrom certainly is this, <laughs> as well. So, yeah, pretty much, you know, there was, Martin Perez has, has had a really nice, you know, career kind of renaissance here, uh, which has been really impressive to see. So, but yeah, I, I do think they, they're a good team, the Rangers, but there is a chance that I think injuries would be their They're probably their biggest concern going forward.
0: Yeah. So it'd be interesting. I mean, I, it's funny. I just did my power rankings and I think I had the Rangers maybe five or six and I got several Rangers fans that were not happy because I wrote, I said, I've been impressed by what I've seen. I'd like to see more because you know, the Rangers won 68 games last year and we've seen a lot of teams such as the angels come up, come out to a good first couple months and then not, not really have it the whole year. These, these Rangers fans are ready to fight. Like they're, they're ready to (laughs) die for their team. So I'm I'm still kind of wanting to see it go on a little longer. Like once we get to the all-star break, I think it's going to be like, Oh my gosh, like Texas is really good, but they're definitely leaving that impression early on. I mean, they have now have the best run differential in the American League thanks to the Toronto Blue Jays beating the Rays by 19 runs the other night. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. Although it, it
1: was, wasn't it like uh, 10 runs against pitchers, but 10 runs against position, position players. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so I saw Vladimir home run that was like, just like just completely murdered a ball to left field on a pitch that was like a softball pitch in there. So, um.
0: (laughs) Well, that's the thing. That's where run differential, I think some people like to boil a lot of things down to whether it be an individual statistic. Like there's kind of a time where everyone was like, war is like the definitive stat that tells you what a player is. Now, some people might say OPS and maybe their other OPS plus or, or whatever it is. I like to always kind of take a bunch of different things as ingredients to this recipe of what what makes a great team. So one of them for the team thing has been run differential. There are a lot of people who like to boil it down to run differential. And I think that that night, the other night, was a good example of why run differential, how it can be uh, inaccurate. So like Toronto has a plus 20 run differential right now. If you take out that game, they have a plus (laughs) one on the season.
1: Yeah. That's definitely skewed. You're right. That is one of the issues with run differential. I think it can be a handy tool. You can kind of see, you know, especially if a team doesn't have, if you take out some of the blowouts like that, you can get a better kind of feel for it. But I, I do think it can be a handy tool to see if a team... Oh, certainly, gonna, yeah. Right now, for example, the Angels have the Marlins coming in uh, this weekend, and the Marlins have been a, a crazy team where they're right around 500, but it's because they have just like this amazing record in one-run games. But their overall run differential, I think, is is pretty bad where they're... You know, their yes. record should be according to the Pythagorean theorem. You know, the thing is supposed to be horrible, but they've been good. So <clears throat> does it mean, you know, that it's going to happen going forward? It's because it, it can be predictive, right? I mean, it probably means are they really that good of a team? Probably not. There's a chance they could probably fall out of it because of that because they're not really. But sometimes crazy things happen in a baseball season and teams find ways to win. And so you can't rule it out going forward that way either. So it's it's kind of interesting in that sense, but I do think it can be a good barometer to kind of see how good a team really is. It can be predictive because even sometimes season to season, if you see a team that won like 90 games, but their run differential wasn't that good, you can see maybe a regression coming the next year because maybe they weren't really that good and they maybe just had a little bit of, you know, good fortune or some luck because that can happen even over the course of 162 games.
0: 100% agree with you. I'm looking at, a, I think, a good example it's almost like if it's a, a negative run differential might say more than a positive run differential because the positive run differential. So for instance, the Cubs are plus 28. I don't think the Cubs are above average team. I, I really don't like they piled up a lot of runs against Oakland. And oh. there were some other, there are there some other games and then they do lose a lot of one run, run, one run games, but losing one run games also means that you're not a very good team. Like your bullpen, isn't very good. That's a reason why you can't win close games. Like winning close games is something that good, good teams do. Um, But no, I do agree. Like, I mean, if we're looking at it right now, run differential right now, Texas has the best one, Tampa, then it's, let's see, Dodgers, Braves. uh, We've got Orioles, Astros, um twins are right around there so I mean that's a pretty good indicator of who a lot of these good teams are so I totally agree with you so I, and then when I see a team that is playing that has a good record but like, like Miami right now 25-25 that's a 500 club minus 49 run differential yeah that's very probably not going to be a 500 team all season probably not no yeah that's a good yeah right now I think it kind of fits but
1: yeah I don't I don't think the Rangers are the best team in baseball either, though, right? You know, even though they have the best run pressure, I don't think they're the best team right now. So clearly the Rays are with the record and what they've been able to do. But even the Rays early on, they had a pretty weak schedule. And it was, you know, impressive they beat up on everyone the way they did. But they did have a weak schedule early, um, which I think did help kind of inflate that record. But they are incredible. They're a great team right now. And, you know, they've always been able to pitch. And hitting was kind of always okay, but now they're hitting too, and they're just this juggernaut. So, I mean, good for the Tampa Bay. I mean, it's amazing what they're able to do uh, kind of with their resources. It's really amazing.
0: I do have Tampa as the best team in baseball. I will say, though, Arrestus Distrade, who did the Rays pregame postgame for about 11, 12 years, uh, he was on here a couple weeks ago, and he brought, he brought up a really good point, something I hadn't thought of is – you know Tampa right now twenty three and five at home, and he drew a correlation to, you know what part of why not not all of why but a part of their success playing at home is because of the hurricane they played all of their spring training games and had all of their workouts in their own building, so he thinks that that um, makes a difference because you're playing and practicing for two months or, or six weeks in the place that you're going to be playing. Um, I mean, do you think there's something to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, Rest has
1: played in the big leagues for a long time and is certainly a, a, an authority on this game. So he would, it like, he would know, especially if he was with the Rays organization in terms of, uh, you know, a broadcaster. So it's hard to disagree. I You know, I didn't even realize, I didn't even think about that as a possibility for why. Um, but you're right, if you're going to be more used to the surroundings and kind of get used to seeing the ball, you know, even just hitting, you know, to kind of get used to that more and more, uh, I think that's only going to help you. You know, even as a pitcher, if you're throwing off that mound more and more, it's only going to help you. You know, that's one of the big thing too. I think people don't realize, even the mounds around the league are a little bit different too. You know, some mounds are firmer, some are softer. Obviously, the weather can play a role. Uh, the weather does not play a role in the mound in Tampa Bay. It's always going to be the same. Um, and you know, so to kind of get used to that mound always, I think is a good thing for these guys. You're right. I, I think that just that practice in there it, it does help. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting theory I never really thought of, but I, I do think that, you know, it definitely could make some sense.
0: Yeah, I think there could be something to that. Now, I think they still would be I, – I don't think that's the reason why – and O would say the same thing. He he thinks they'd still be the best team in baseball, but 23-5? and five, I don't know if they're 23-5 and five, if they're, you know, not playing all their spring training games at the Trop. The other thing you mentioned in terms of how you can – you know, parks are different – one thing with the trop that I've heard is it's a, it can be a, an easy place for infielders and outfielders to lose fly balls looking up at that roof. So they definitely got some a little more practice with those fly balls for sure. Yeah, definitely. I've seen that happen before a couple times where a ball goes up there
1: and a the guy can't find it. It comes down and drops for, in for what they call a double. I've even seen ones hit the, the beams up there too, but that's something you can't really practice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, You know, I think Shohei, the one he hit a couple years ago off the catwalk, was still one of the most amazing uh, home runs I've ever seen. So, um, but yeah, you're right. Just that practice with the, you know, the the rules in there within the ball, obviously you can lose it because the the roof is white. Um, So it's good practice for the infielders and outfielders and even the catchers to do pop-up drills and fly ball drills. And like I said, getting used to that, you know, backdrop as a hitter, the hitter's eye, the batter's eye, and, you know, even that mound. I do think that was an advantage for the the Rays going into the season for sure.
0: So everybody's talking about the American League East as they should be. I mean, all five teams are above 500. And at some point, you know, some might have even said that I I don't think I would go this far, but some had said, you know, maybe the best five teams in the American League are all in this division. I, I wouldn't have gone that far. Some have held that belief. Everyone's talking about the American League East as they should. But the American League West is a very competitive division. They, you know, the the main difference is that the team at the bottom is actually really, really bad in the AL West. That doesn't exist in the AL East. There's nobody that's, you know, historically, I mean, Oakland's on pace. 10-41, right? Right now, 10 and 10-41, and and as of Sunday, they were on pace to win, I think, 35 games this year. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. (laughs) It's, like, impressive how bad they are. Um, So, I mean, okay, you do have that one team at the bottom, but you've got four teams right now that are capable of winning this division. It's it's a fun little race that you got out here on the West, and we're not talking about it anywhere near as much as, you know, East Coast always gets the love. It's, that's how it goes. Of course, yeah,
1: that's an unfortunate truth. But um, I think part of it, too, is the Mariners have disappointed so far. I think there was a lot of high hopes for the Mariners. And, you know, last year, though, too, they had a slow start, and they, you know, finished strong and got to the playoffs for the first time. It was just 2001, so it was a fun year for them. I know their fans were really excited. I think there was a lot of excitement this year for them, and so far they just haven't really delivered. Um, so I think that's kind of maybe added to it. They haven't really – I think if the Mariners were having a really good year too, and it was the Mariners and Rangers and having great years, and the Angels were hanging in there with, with the Astros, there'd be a little bit more talk about it. But the Mariners have been such a disappointment, I think, that it hasn't really you know, had that much excitement. And even, like I said, the Astros haven't really been themselves And uh, so it's kind of not quite as much hype because the Astros, I've done it so long, it's kind of more legit. Whereas, like you said, with the Rangers, there's still that question of, are they good or are they not? Like, they still have to prove it. Like, let's be honest, like you said, they have to prove it. And so far they have. The best run differential in baseball, you know, they're leading the West. Absolutely have so far to this point, but they have to continue to prove it the rest of the season, right? We've seen teams, the Angels last year, at 27 and 17, I would have told you, wow, yeah, they're going to probably make the playoffs. They're looking great. And all of a sudden, you know, next thing you know, they lose like fourteen in a row, and it's the whole season's already over in the span of middle of June. So, crazy things can happen. And like I said, last year I thought the Mariners were dead in the water when the Angels beat them up in Seattle one series. And sure enough, the Mariners went on a roll and you know got to the postseason. So, you know, crazy things can happen in this game, um, and they can wake up at some point. The Mariners can, but I, and I think if they do, then it does become an even more exciting division race here. Um, but you're right; I think there's four. Teams really trying to compete and that are competitive, uh, and then you got the the A's that are uh, amazingly bad. So, um, you know, the A's would fit in better, I think, in the central than they would maybe in the west. We can swap the we'll take the Twins or something in the west. They could have the A's, but um, we'll see what happens with the A's too. If they go to Vegas next year and all that craziness. So there's always something going on in the West. Uh, but you're right, the East does get a lot more uh, a lot more attention, and rightfully so with with you know Yankees and Red Sox and. You know what the, the what the Rays have done this year, and, and even the Blue Jays are are definitely a very uh, exciting team, and the Orioles have been incredible. I mean, it's amazing what the Orioles have done, you know, having one of the best records in baseball and a fun young team. They still have to prove it too to me, but um, they are uh, definitely been just like the Rangers, been one of the better, uh, you know, surprise stories of the season so far.
0: Now you mentioned, hey, we could put. Minnesota in this division are you suggesting that we introduce relegation to major league baseball (laughs) that'd be pretty fun I mean I'm definitely a soccer fan but I just don't know if we can uh have enough
1: stadiums or enough you know major league stadiums to go around to have teams get promoted and relegated but uh the A's right now I would love to see how they do in you know triple-a right
0: now because they probably wouldn't might not even be the best team in (laughs) triple-a could you imagine if we had two leagues like if we went back to like cause we did have really like two leagues that were different from each other. And then they eventually merged for major league baseball. Um, If we went back to one of these leagues, like let's just say we started it with like the top 15 payrolls in one league, the bottom 15 payrolls in the other league. And then it's like, Okay, good job, Phillies. Like you guys have moved now. You have the fourth highest payroll and you're now in our bottom tier league. Like that would be that would actually be really funny.
1: (laughs) Actually it's interesting. I never thought of it that way. That would be pretty fun to see that happen and I couldn't imagine the Philly fan base, though, if they had all this money and then had a bad season and got relegated, what they would do. Uh, like <laughs> might light the stadium on fire, though, so we might not be able to do it out here in the States. So I'm not but, sure that if we ever saw a team like that get relegated. I don't know how well that would go at Fenway either. <laughs> uh,
0: well, yeah, okay, so you'd have the Cubs. They would be relegated.
1: <laughs> well, it'd help you from tanking, right? No more tanking for the big teams. You know, That's, that's kind of the thing. I mean, it, it's one of those things. That if the Cubs and the Astros didn't win those World Series... After those tank jobs, I think there wouldn't be as much tanking, but because they both did, I think it made it okay for other teams to follow that model. And it's not always a perfect model. It just happened to be executed well by the Cubs and the Astros. Um, and I think other teams have tried it and have not executed it well and have been stuck in rebuilds for a long time. So I think that's one of the things in baseball in general they do need to try to address. So is to stop the tanking. You know, it's not fun for fans to, have to sit through a whole 162 game season. With a team tanking like that, um, and without a clear strategy, I mean, the A's to their credit have been a good team in the past and have done this not to this quite quite extent of a full teardown, but at least they've had the vision in the past to be a good team after doing this. But it's a dangerous thing to do, and it's just not it's not fair to the fans to have to sit through these rough seasons uh, before you know these teams get good. It's just a tough cycle to have to deal with as a fan.
0: So I'm actually not a huge fan of the term tanking in baseball sure. because I think. The 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 reason why when I associate tanking, I think of, hey, the goal is to try to lose as many games as possible. And maybe there are a couple teams that do that. But I think generally what these teams are doing is we're going to sell everything that we have at a major league level to build our farm system. And as a product of that, we're going to lose a, a lot of games. So it's maybe what people want to call it anti-competitiveness sure. or yeah, what cool. have you, because I just I, I don't think... Like these teams aren't trying to like when I yeah, i tanking them yeah 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 or even in the NFL like we're seeing at the end of the we're ending some of these yeah. like at the end of the year so I have an idea of how we could address that and hmm. this is it's not a lottery it's something different here's what I'm going to pitch to you Rhett here's my idea how about the number the draft order is determined by most wins after playoff elimination. Hmm. So theoretically, the Oakland A's are going to be the team that gets eliminated first. Once they're eliminated, they're going to need to win those games. So the goal is so if essentially the worst team should have the opportunity to win the most games. But this would make it theoretically, it could be interesting because now you get to the trade deadline and the A's are like, well, we want that number one overall pick. Let's let's add a few guys here to this sure. roster. Maybe we start winning some games and then it could be fun for the fans because you're rooting for your team to win at the end of the season. Interesting. I never thought of that. I like that. No, yeah, I I'd
1: have to look more into it and how that would actually all play out and see how many wins the team usually has after they're eliminated and all that. But it does make sense, you know, at least once you're out, to have a real reason to continue to to, to play. And instead bring in new guys or bring up prospects that you think actually can help you uh, in September and that kind of stuff and have a reason for the fans to care in September would I think it makes sense. Yeah. I actually kinda of like that idea. i I'd have to, you know, dive into it a little deeper, but it does seem fun. And I said anything that keeps the fans more engaged later in the season, I think, is better. Because that's the hard part, right? When your team's in September and your team's totally out of it, it's easy to just totally check out and go, Okay, you know, I'm gonna watch football. I got college and NFL and everything else and everything else going on in my life. I don't need the end of the baseball season and my team's out of it. But now, hey, you know what, actually, if they win this random game, they could get a better pick, you know, you might have more of a reason to watch. So if there's at least an incentive for your team, there's more of an incentive for you to watch. And I think even the NBA play-in thing for me is, is a good example of that. I thought it was a dumb idea at first, but I actually kind of warmed up to it a little bit more. And there's more reason to, you know, kind of get into it at the end of the season. We've seen teams get into play-in and actually do well in the postseason. So I think anything kind of can continue to have fans' interest. Uh, later in the season is a good thing.
0: So theoretically, obviously it wouldn't be perfect because now teams might have, maybe they're trying to lose games at the start of the season, um, but it would bring in some form of like competition for them to try to win something. And I think that would be like, it would just be, I think it'd be fun because it's like, okay, we're getting down to the deadline. Okay, the, the A's are picking up a couple starting pitchers here. Oh, this is interesting. And now the other thing is then like you don't like to see these teams at the end of the year, where again, I, I don't think most of the time I don't think these teams are trying to lose. I think they're, they're it's just a product of how they're assembling their roster. is they're getting a lot of guys at the big league level, stockpiling the farm system. So and then they end up like you have teams that are so uninspired at the end of the year. But wouldn't it be fun if now all of a sudden the A's are like, man, we got this big series with the Red Sox. The Red Sox are trying to get into the playoffs. But we we, we got to try to win these games so we can get that number one overall pick. And I get, again, I know like having a number one overall pick in baseball isn't a, tr- a transformational franchise thing like getting a quarterback or a star in the NBA. But still, like it'd be something that'd be really fun. Because then, again, another one, how about you have – what if you have the A's and the Reds playing, like, with a week left? And this is like, man, these teams really need these wins in order to get that number one overall pick. And you have a chance to clinch the number one overall pick in front of your fans at home. I just think that could be a fun thing.
1: I agree. And you're right. I know it's not transform- or transformational usually, but sometimes, some years there are, right? Every now and then there is a, you know, Bryce Harper is available or a available Steven Strasburg. You know, this year I think there's a clear one and two. The guys from LSU, um, Cruz, and uh, the pitcher there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, if you can get one of those top picks up there, I mean, it can make a difference. Um, You know, the number one pick sometimes doesn't work out, but generally that's going to be a a pretty big prospect for your team. So, um, yeah, I think that'd be pretty fun to have these teams have a reason to kind of compete late in the season, kind of secure that number one pick. Cause I know fans, you know, even the lottery itself, I mean, fans love watching the ping-pong balls to see who's going to pick number one. <laughs> I think they'd rather watch a, a, the team actually play a game to determine that as well. So um, you're right. I do think that's a cool idea um, just to kind of have a reason to, to to try to at least try. Because if not, if that season, I think your scenario there, if it's the Reds and the A's, they're going to be trying to lose probably for a draft pick instead. They'd rather give them an incentive to try to win just because it makes for better baseball and better for the fans.
0: Yeah, I'm not really sure if the lottery really does anything. Like Because I honestly, I honestly wonder if it's like – man like we really got to lose otherwise we could fall to like pick 6 or pick mm-hmm. 7 if we don't hit our odds well in the lottery so I, I honestly don't even i don't really think the lottery is going to do anything of what they're hoping it would do other than maybe provide a little bit of excitement for people to watch it during the winter meetings but it didn't seem like based on based on this past i mean it's only year 1 but it seemed yeah. like it wasn't really something that got a whole lot of buzz from the fans or excited. No, not really.
1: Not much. I mean, I think the Twins moved up a decent amount last year, but yeah, it wasn't really a thing where it was a big mover, shaker type thing or got the fans too excited. But it was the first year of it, and the fans do enjoy the lottery, I know, in the NBA and NHL. But this, you know, same thing, in the NBA and NHL this year both have generational number one overall picks coming, too, you know, in the NHL. Yeah. Dard, and then obviously, uh, Wimbayana with the NBA. So, was was actual reasons to celebrate for those franchises. But I think in baseball, you're right, it's harder you're not going to celebrate unless there is like a Bryce Harper type guy available in the draft, which, you know, is only every 10 years or so, you know?
0: Yeah. And the lottery hasn't really stopped a whole lot of tanking in the NBA. I don't, I don't no. think. No, not at all. Yeah. All right. So one other reason I mentioned earlier, I think I forgot to mention one reason why I think this angels team is different from a team in years past is I like the change at manager. I think Phil Nevin's done a really good job so far. Um, and I didn't really from my outside thing, I wasn't up there close and personal like you were at, but I just didn't really think that the Joe Madden thing was ever going to work. I remember hearing Bob Nightingale report that Albert Pujols told the ownership or he told the front office when he left that they're never going to win with Madden as the manager of that team. I kind of felt like Madden may have been past his prime. He also was managing a group of a lot of veteran players. And he also was doing; he was making some decisions that were a little questionable. I think Phil Nevin has done a really good job, though. I think it's—I don't want to say that Phil Nevin is a better ma- uh, manager than Joe Madden is, but he's a better manager for this team, is my opinion.
1: No, I agree with that statement for sure. As a especially that last part, I think he's a better manager for this team for sure. Is he a better manager overall? I mean, Joe obviously had a great career, you know, especially with Tampa Bay and then winning that World Series with the Cubs. Um, but, you know, it was a, you know, a tough situation where, you know, the Angels had Brad Auspice as their manager in 2019, had that tough season with Skaggs passing away, they had a terrible second half. Um, and then Joe is available and, and Joe is a big name and Joe's a former Angel, you know, coach for a long time with Ty's organization and then Artie Moreno in the front office wanted to have, you know, Joe as their guy. So they, they brought in Joe. It made some sense at the time kind of rejuvenate the team and even the fan base get a little excited cuz Joe is, you know, a name for a manager for sure. Um I think he got dealt the tough hand obviously with you know having to deal with the covid year in 2020 and then uh you know I but I think the big thing for him was as it went along he's kind of more of an old school manager and didn't quite click with the front office. And I think even his as he went along he was, you know, one of those things where he wasn't fully in tune with everything in the organization, too, sometimes. Even with us, we'd ask him what's going on with so-and-so's injury or how's so-and-so doing at, you know, AAA. And you could tell Joe wasn't – didn't really know as much, right? He was more interested in the 26 guys he had in his, you know, locker room that are ready to play. And everybody else, kind of old-school mentality, he didn't really know or really bother with. Whereas, you know, Nevin is fully plugged in on everything that's going on in the organization. Um, he's aware of what's going on. He's, you know, someone that has a good relationship with the front office and also with the players especially. I think Joe being a little bit older was tougher for him to really relate to the players. Whereas Nevin is, you know, in his 50s and he's kind of a father figure to some of them, especially the young guys like Neto, uh, maybe even Reed Detmers and the guys that are early 20s, you know, Logan Ohapi. Um, so I think these guys really respond to him. I think they play for him. They really like him. There's better energy. Um, I think Joe Trident's still that, but it just didn't quite come across. Um, and then I think with with Nevin, he's just more kind of in the clubhouse more talking to guys. Just a better relationship, I think, overall with the players. And I think they've responded to that. And I do think that's the reason why they've been better this year. Because I do think Nevin really connects with those guys really well.
0: Yeah, I kind of feel, and I have not met Joe Madden, but I have met I have met Phil. Joe Madden strikes me as someone that um might be someone that not everyone would connect to. Like I, I just don't like to me, like I talked to Phil and I just felt like, yeah, I, I like what you're saying. Like, I feel like I, if I played for this guy, I'd really like want to play for him. And I felt connected with him just after talking with him for a few minutes. Um, former player just kind of feel like felt like just everything you're saying. Whereas I feel like Madden, you know, maybe it's, he's a little older and, you know, just kind of the way he talks a little bit. Like, he just seems like someone that not every single player might connect, connect to the way that Phil Nevin does.
1: Yeah, I mean, Joe has a persona to him, right? I mean, Joe's kind of got, he's, especially now he's gotten older too, but just a different feel than than um, Phil. Phil's a little bit more down-to-earth in a sense, yeah. I guess you could say. Yeah. And so a little bit more relatable, especially for the players, because I do think he's... Like Joe probably to a lot of the players is kind of like they're like a grandpa's age to them. Yeah. He's a kind of a hip cool grandpa, but kind, of like, kind a, of
0: like a like a nutty professor kind of guy. Yeah.
1: So and then when you're, you know, these players that are in their early twenties, mid-20s, and they got a manager who's like in their early fifties and is just kind of a big emotional guy too. I mean, Phil wears his emotions on his sleeves, whether it's his anger in the dugout or his emotions talking about his sons in the big, you know, his son in the big leagues and what Bruce Bochy meant to him as a manager. He just wears his emotions on his sleeve, too, because he's an emotional guy. Um, so he always sticks up for his players in terms of they'll get thrown out of a game if there's something going on with the the player at the plate or they're like the call. So he's a fiery guy. And I think, but it's still authentic. You know, he wears it all on his sleeve. So I think the players know that, like, Phil is 100% real and authentic. And he actually is really, you know, there for us and really trying to go to bat for us and will deflect blame to the media for us. So I, I think he's just, he just, and also because he communicates better. I think they kind of just have a better overall understanding of of what their roles are and what, you know, Phil's overall motivation role. I think it just works better for this, for this group specifically. And clearly Joe's, you know, motivation tactics and his roles have worked in the past, you know, winning the world series and what, what he did in Tampa Bay was amazing, but I think it just didn't work here in Anaheim. And I think the move to Nevin was a smart one. And I think, he really has done a good job, I think, this year, especially as he's kind of learned more. Because last year was his first, you know, foray, foray into doing it in, in the big league level. I think he's gotten better with, with more experience and more time.
0: So we're coming up on almost a year now since a memorable day in what will be what will be a memorable day in Angels history was that gigantic fight between the Angels and the Mariners. And that had been kind of brewing for a little bit. Do you feel like that was a day that Phil Nevin may have like taken over that clubhouse, won over the clubhouse, and brought that team together? I think it definitely played a role in that a little bit, and I think
1: you know, I think the team. But at the same time, you know, it it, it hurt the team in a lot of ways too. Though, you know, that was a thing where Nevin had to go away for ten days, and uh, you know, I think the guys respected him doing what he did to kind of to you know kind of get back and show the Mariners, you know, they're not going to take anything lightly if they're going to be throwing at Mike Trout. But at the same time, it kind of hurt them overall because, you know, they had a kind of a short staff, uh, you know, with their coaching staff in general, was kind of um, hit, hurt by it. And then, you know, even just the suspensions in general for their pitching staff and some other things, they ended up going on a pretty bad little, you know, skid after that fight, whereas the Mariners were the ones that ended up playing really well afterwards. So if anything, it kind of galvanized the Mariners <laughs> oh, more yeah. than the Eagles in a weird way. Um, but it was another thing that shows, that, you know, that he definitely has their back, but also shows sometimes that, his like fiery emotions can get the best of him a little bit too. Like looking back, I bet he regrets, you know, instructing Wance to do what he did. And, and as obvious as they did it, they did it way too obvious. It was it was that's why he got suspended. It was a hundred percent obvious, and it was yeah, it was really a silly thing to do it the way they did. But it does show, right? He does have their guys' back, and I think that was just another example. But truthfully, looking back at that example it it did actually come back to kind of haunt them a little bit so um but it was another example of him him being kind of a pro player type manager
0: you were there for that day right i
1: actually was not it was a it was a home game but it was a random home game where i only get a few of them off a year at home and sure enough i was home and i wasn't watching the game either at that time (laughs) right because if
0: you're if you're off you don't want to you need to be away from your
1: job yeah i mean every now and if i'm off i'll watch you know but not always don't if I have like plans but that day I was not watching I got all these texts saying what's going on in the game like there's a fight and I was like what are you guys talking about so I put on my MLB.TV on my phone and I was like oh wow okay (laughs) and then like rewinded it and rewatched it and then watched all this stuff on Twitter and I was there the next day and dealt with all the aftermath and everything else but uh, the actual fight I was not there for but it would have been you know fun to see and our spot in the press box would have been looking right down on where the action was so uh, it would have been pretty crazy to
0: have seen it. But <laughs> well, I was going to – yeah, what I would have asked you was if if you were like, okay, something's going to happen today. Like, we're sensing there's so much tension. Everyone, yeah. And I wasn't
1: there the day before. I don't think either. I think I had two days off. And everyone that was there knew that was going to happen because the way, even when they talked to Trout after that game and the way that everyone was just – the way the clubhouse was, like, everybody knew something was going to happen the next day. And then when it was that obvious with Wance – being brought in as the you know the opener and start of guys in the first inning it was like well okay then this is gonna happen so um yeah that was a crazy day
0: <laughs> it reminded me of when John Lackey had just come back. I think he was injured and the first thing he did was he threw it behind Ian Kinsler. Yeah and I think he hit him on the next pitch and then
1: he got tossed. Yeah I was actually covering the Angels as a backup back then and I remember it was I think it was in Texas though, but I remember that happening And that was his very first start of the season. And he did so much. He hated the Rangers, but he threw at Kinsler the very first batter. That's one of the funny stories about, yeah, Lackey. You you have any good stories about Lack? He was, you know, he was just a hard, hard guy to get to know. I was so young when I was covering him. He was just so gruff, you know, back then (laughs) still with the angels. Um, So it was hard to really get to know him. Uh, You know, he was with the Red Sox uh, when I was covering the twins and he had the Tommy John surgery. And that year that he had Tommy John, he was rehabbing in Fort Myers. But, like, literally, like, anytime I went out in Fort Myers, uh, you know, go get a drink or something like that, like, anywhere I went, like, John Lackey would happen to (laughs) be out, too, because he was rehabbing, so he wasn't playing any games. And he was – let's just say he was having his fun with uh, a lot of uh, maybe Florida Gulf Gulf Coast uh, girls or something. But, but no, (laughs) maybe not. But, yeah, no, he was was out and about that year on his Tommy John uh, year. But, no, he, you know, he's an angel legend. Angels will always love him for Game 7 of 2002. You know, three World Series titles, it's amazing. He was back in camp this year as a guest instructor, which was really cool. And the players uh, the players really, you know, look up to him a lot. And it really is one of the more underrated careers, especially to win three World Series the way that he did. And then with two teams, and really in curse franchises too, uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing. So kudos to him for that, and especially for
0: Game 7 of 2002. And yeah, really... Underrated career for sure. Did he? Oh my gosh. Was he there? Like, how many days was he at spring training? Because I was there one of the, I was at, I was at Angels Camp, I think three days. And one of the days he was there and I met him briefly. I was like, Yeah, Man, he was there only for like maybe, he was there probably for five days or so. Okay. I was like, I'm lucky I was here the, like the one day, one of the days that Lack is here. I talked to him and he just seemed like, Man, he's a he's a character with the big teeth and yeah, and, oh, yeah. His voice is a little different too. But yeah, you know, I was he, like, I was like, hey, hey, John. He's like, oh, nice to meet you, man. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's a big dude too. That's the thing, big old Texan. So no, I mean, yeah, it was cool to see him around in spring training. He was at the 2002. uh They had a reunion last year too at at Angel Stadium. So it's good to see him around the organization again. That's one thing that Nevin has done a really good job of doing too. And and and, and truthfully, Madden. Tried doing this too, but some of it was because of the pandemic. But bringing a lot of the old former players in. Because when I covered the Twins, that was like one of their best qualities was they always had, you know, Rod Carew around and, you know, Tony Oliva and, and Burt Blylevin and, you know, all their legends were around. And now it's that way with the Twins with more around a lot. And, you know, and I think Joe Maurer's starting to come around a little bit more with them and Tori Hunter. Obviously, does it with the Angels as well. So we just see more guys in camp this year. It was kind of fun to see a lot of former Angels legends seemed like every day there was somebody new. So that was kind of cool for the players to see and and to learn from. You know, these guys had been there and done it. I know it was a different generation, but still the same game in a lot of ways. And so it's cool to learn from these guys. And I said, and Lackey is definitely a, a big part of that, and especially with Angels, uh you know, history.
0: Yeah, I remember the the one day I really spent a lot of time at Angels camp was uh Lackey was there, Kurt Suzuki was there, it was Kurt's now employed by the team. And... Ben Francisco is also now... He's a minor league coach. I think he was maybe doing a little bit of scouting before that. Um, Those And uh, all those guys. It was cool. And then there was only one other team that I visited that I really noticed that at was the Mariners camp. Um, Ichiro was taking batting practice. Uh, Mike Cameron was participating in hitting drills. Um, And then, well not, not a former, not a former Mariner, but Steven Vogt's a coach now. So that was really the only of the camps where I'm like, oh, like, this is like, this is something going, these two camps were the only ones where I'm like, wow, oh, I'm seeing like former players. Like, this is really cool.
1: Yeah. that's a, that's always a cool thing to see, you know, that, you know, I'm obviously having each row anywhere is amazing. Each is just the best. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a cool thing for the players to get to know these guys and to learn from them. I mean, even with, Carew would come into camp and teach them bunning and all that stuff. And like, who better to learn from than Rod Carew? And, and definitely a lost art for sure. But, you know, even pitching, you know, you can always learn from from former players and show you their grips or how they threw th- certain things. I know now they've got, you know, all the high-speed cameras and, you know, all the tracking devices to do all sorts of stuff. But you can still try new things, and, and especially with grips and that kind of stuff now and actually get instant feedback too. So. Um, Yeah, I think it's just good to have these guys in camp and to be around and then even for the fans to see them and connect to them and be able to, you know, tell them about their favorite memories and just it brings back those memories, too. So I think it's just good for baseball to continue to have their former players be a part of it. And um, I'm happy that the Angels have been able to do that, uh, especially this spring. And even during the season, you see guys, you know, you still see Tim Salmon at the park a lot and Garrett Anderson as well. Um, So it is cool seeing guys like that, especially that are such prominent former Angels still a part of the organization and still uh, around the team.
0: So we teased it earlier on. We got it. We got to touch on it before we go. Los Angeles angels. They're five games up above 500. They're one game back. The wild card. Shohei Otani is in the final year of his contract. Could there be a trade here with Otani? It seems unlikely at this particular juncture.
1: I think the only way it happens is if Otani flat out says, I am not signing here and the angels are also out of the race. Um, I don't see a scenario where they trade him if they're in the race or if they have even a semblance of a chance of, of signing him in the offseason. Uh, he just means too much to them. Um, especially if they're in the race, you just, you can't replace them with whoever you're going to get. You're going to get prospects. that are not going to help you quite yet anyway. Um, and even if you do get prospects for the future, I think people are overestimating what they're going to get for Shohei for half a year or for two months of Shohei. I mean, the Dodgers, you know, got a full season of Trey Turner and then the two months and two months and postseason season Scherzer, and they gave away, you know, Ruiz and Gray, and they seem like big leaguers. They seem okay, but I don't think either, either of them are going to be anything too special. I mean, so are the angels really going to get some return that's much better than a year of Turner and, and you know, part of a year of of Scherzer for a couple months of Shohei, I don't really know. So, I mean, is it really going to be the – everyone acts like it's going to be this franchise-changing trade. They'll get all these prospects. But for two months of Shohei, I just don't really see it. And there's also the business side of it too. Shohei brings in a ton of revenue in terms of all the the fans that come to his games and just the Japanese sponsorships they have right now all over the ballpark um, and just all the merchandise and everything else that Shohei brings in they trade him all that goes away and obviously it's going to go away if you sign somewhere else too uh, but I don't think they're willing to do that now in season said unless it was an absolute case where he said hey I'm absolutely not coming back and the team just went on another big losing streak before the deadline and was totally out of it but if they're even remotely in it um, I think they're going to you know keep showing and see what they can do and see what they can do and try to resign him you know I, I, it's hard to really know what's going to happen I think anyone who tells you they know what he's going to do is, is definitely lying to you Shoei's a really private person, um, really doesn't talk to us much in the media outside of his, um, after his starts, really. Um, so he's a private guy, and so it's hard to really know what he what he wants. I think the Angels will still be in that mix, but you've got to figure the Mets and the Dodgers are going to be, you know, a big prominent part of that as well, as well as, the, you know, I'm sure the Mariners and, and Padres, and can't rule out the Yankees making a run. So, I mean, every team in baseball is going to want him. It's just going to be who's going to be able to afford the, Five hundred or six hundred million or whatever he's gonna get. So it's a crazy, you know, thing that we we monitor out here, you know, as much as we can. But right now, this time of year, he's not gonna sign an extension now, and he's not gonna get traded now. So it's not quite on the radar yet. But as we get closer to July, it's gonna be a big talking point. And clearly, clearly, his contract situation's all year has been a talking point through the national media, just because it's so crazy. Because no one's gonna, you know, no one really knows what's gonna happen and how much money he's gonna get.
0: So, I'm glad you mentioned those potential suitors because based on what I've heard, I would be surprised if he ended up not on the West Coast. I mean, that's a long way. If you're playing all the way on the East Coast, that's a, a long way from Japan. But also, it makes a difference with the time change for fans that want to watch him. So, um, if he's playing on the West Coast, that's three hours uh, later in the day in Japan. Whereas, if he's playing in new york the fans are gonna have to watch him at like 8 a.m which which makes a big difference versus 11 a.m um if the fans out in japan want to watch him and i'm i certainly cares about those fans in japan so that's number one so i don't i don't think the i mean, they're the yankees and the mets and i'm certain he'll meet with them i just i don't think that's going to happen mariners I asked Dave Sims last week on this show. He said he doesn't see it happening at all. He doesn't think the Mariners are going to be able to pony up that money. So the way I'm looking at this thing is based on what I've heard and what I know, the Dodgers and Padres are going to be all in on this guy. It seems like Padres Nightingale reported um, recently that they're going to be, they're going to be aggressively pursuing Otani and if they get Otani, they might trade Juan Soto because they're not going to extend Juan Soto in that case. The Giants have been looking for that premier free agent for a while. So I expect them to be in the mix. Could it just be the four California teams really in the, is the serious players for Otani?
1: Maybe as serious players, but they're definitely going to get the teams on the East Coast in the mix. Oh, certainly, yeah. Because... You know, the Mets, you know, GM right now, you know, Billy Epler was a GM who signed him in Anaheim, too. So yep, he have a that's connection true. There. Um, and the Mets have a, an owner that's willing to, you know, throw a lot of money out there. We know that. So um, it's going to be a, a crazy sweepstakes when it gets to it. And see, it's going to be crazy to see what happens here. It's going to be the most anticipated free agency in, in baseball history, really, as long as you can get through the year, you know, healthy um, and strong. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be crazy to see what's going to happen. And, you know, the Angels are going to do everything they can. To try to keep him as well but part of it's going to be you know how they finish the season you know are they going to make the postseason if they, if they do make the postseason I think that'll increase his odds of, of wanting to stay but some of it too he wants to know is this going to be a good team going forward too is this just a one-year thing where they went all in and happened to get to the postseason or is this sustainable and I think maybe the fact that there's some young guys now like Zach Neto, we've seen and you know Moniak's only 25 and you know Detmers is 23 and you know, they got you know they're bringing up Sam Bachman, one of their top pitching prospects tomorrow, so maybe that'll help to see some of these young guys perform too for him. But yeah, I mean it's it's going to be crazy this, this whole thing with Shohei because really, like I said, no one really knows what he wants You he hear. Things you know through the media, the Japanese media especially, but really it's not coming from Shohei or really even his agent. They've been pretty mum on all that kind of stuff. Um, but I do think you're right. I do think the West Coast is is more much more likely where he ends up. Um, but I do think the Mets are going to make a run for sure. They're going to make a run we'll for sure. We'll see. But that, it, probably more than anything, it's just going
0: to raise the price on him. The, yeah, exactly. I mean, know. it could be a situation where the Mets are just like, we're going to double the offer of what the West Coast teams are willing to give you. Come out to the East Coast, and maybe that money, maybe that money changes things. I mean, money changes th- things for everybody. I mean, uh, but yeah, I'm just, I guess, what I'm curious to know is, I just think like as people talk about where Otani could be, as I hear people talk, I mean, it's it's New York, it's Seattle, it's those teams on the West Coast, and Seattle's on the West Coast too, but I don't hear the Angels being talked about as much. It seems like a lot of people are acting like this is a foregone conclusion that he's leaving, it, and it doesn't sound like that's the case based on what you and I are talking about.
1: No, because those riders are all based on the East Coast, right? It's all the guys <laughs> yeah. in New York who want Shoei out of Anaheim. So that's more their opinion than actual facts or what's really going on. I mean, clearly, and also it's easy to pick on the Angels, right? They're the easiest, their the biggest running joke, probably in baseball over the last decade. You know, to have Trout this whole time, and then have Otani too now, and then not make the postseason since 2016. And the issues with you know the owner was looked like he was going to sell, and now he's not. You know, all this stuff going on with this organization. They've had other issues in the past clearly. So I think they're easy to pick on. So it's easy to be like, okay, Shohei, he's leaving there for sure. It's just Anaheim. Whereas I think when you're really around it and see, you know, how much he does like the certain, you know, people that he's around and, you know, the stuff that, you know, every day you see, it's it's a little different, but at the same time, they are right. that He does have to be, you know, prove that this team's going to be good in the future and it's going to be sustainable. And maybe he doesn't think it's going to be that way. And I think a lot of people do feel that the angels right now are inconsistent franchise. It doesn't really have a clear path to being, you know, consistently good, but they are starting to break in some better prospects. They do make the postseason. I do think they have a chance to keep Otani. It's just a matter of, you know, how they fare the end of the year, Um, you know, and if they make the postseason, I think they'll have a better shot. But in general, anyone who says they really know where Otani is going to go, they don't really know yet. I mean, it really is just one of those things where he's such a private guy. No one really knows yet. People can speculate and there are certain places that make more sense than others but to rule out Anaheim or you know anything like that I think would be uh, silly at this
0: point. Maybe you could touch on this. I mean, you know he is a private guy. Um, he's not a big like party guy, right? He's not a big nightlife guy. So uh, that's another thing where you speculate. West Coast might sound a little better than New York.
1: Yeah, no matter where he lives, he's not going to go out and do anything. I mean, all he literally does is he goes to the ballpark, he gets his work in all day, he hits or pitches that day or both, and then... Goes home and sleeps a ton and then comes back to the ballpark and does it again. He really doesn't have anything of a social life, to be honest, when he's during the season because he doesn't really have time for it. It's just such a – to be able to pitch and hit at the level that he does, it takes so much work and so much preparation that that's all he focuses on. It's all about his diet, his exercise, his routine, and his sleep. I mean, he's a huge sleeper. I mean, he loves to sleep more than anything. It's a big part of his routine – we loves baseball more than anything but sleep's like a big part of his routine. But yeah, I mean he truthfully outside the ballpark isn't a very interesting guy because all he is is just this baseball like amazing robot that just like, you know, it's just amazing. I mean, he's just an absolute freak nature, but a part of it's because he puts so much work into it and because he's so singularly focused on being the best baseball player in the world. And that's why he is the best baseball player, you know, the best in the world because he's the one that, you know, he's so focused on baseball. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that changes as he gets older or, or in a new, you know, if a new team or just new life experiences or whatever. But as of right now, he's just, you know, pretty much a baseball rat whose entire existence is baseball right now.
0: You know, uh, touching on that, another thing, Mike Trout, people have kind of said that, oh, this Mike Trout guy, he doesn't he's not a huge personality or some people might say he's boring. I mean, I was in, I was at spring training. I, I don't think that's the case. I think this guy's got a lot of charisma and he's a really funny guy.
1: No, yeah, Mike, you know, he's definitely a jokester in the clubhouse. You know, the biggest thing about him is he just loves sports. Not every baseball player loves other sports or sports in general, but he's just a sports guy. He loves his Philadelphia teams. He just loves sports in general. He's always, you know, following along, things like that. So he's always talking trash with his teammates about, you know, whatever sports teams they like or what's going on. So, yeah, he's more of a loudmouth in the clubhouse and you realize, um just more of a jokester um you know on the record he can be a little bit bland with us and all that stuff but he's always accommodating and he's always available I mean that's the one thing about him if you need him for something he'll always talk and he's always going to be really nice about it and as friendly as can be you can tell he was raised you know right he's just an awesome guy so no I mean it it, it reminds me of Joe Maurer who I covered in Minnesota where on the record he's pretty bland but just a really good person and, and really that's all you can ask for from them you know that you don't have to be a great quote to be a, you know a great person so
0: right yeah totally i could see that i mean if if someone's bland on the record can they still be someone that like can you can is there a way that people could maybe see that personality come out a little more even if he's not doing it in interviews like i mean it's, could it's he be doing commercials or
1: yeah commercials or social media of course um that's the way to do it but i mean it's you know it's up to the player if they want to do that and Trout does some of that, but for the most part, he kind of lays pretty low, and it's fine being kind of a quieter superstar the way that he is. The same with Shoei. He doesn't talk to us much. Shoei does a lot of commercials, and Shoei has a sense of humor, too. He's always joking around, um, and knows, you know, a decent amount of English, Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, they're both guys that don't really say much on the record, but obviously have personalities beyond that.
0: Yeah, Trout, I was talking with Eagles with him, so that checks out, exactly. He was being funny, he was cracking jokes, we're talking Eagles. That's, that's Mike Trout. <laughs> right? Exactly. That's what he loves. The Eagles, the weather, and uh in golf, so. Oh man, do you play golf, right? I do. I'm not any good, but I do like to golf with my dad when I get a chance to, yeah. Same. That's me and my dad right now every Wednesday. Every oh, Wednesday nice. is our golf day. Um Perks are kind of being on a weird schedule with right? the, the the world that you and I are in is Yeah, I
1: play more during the off season with my dad. I try to play Tuesdays or Wednesdays too, yeah. So,
0: well, we can't play in the off season in Chicago. They're,
1: yeah, <laughs> well, that's the one benefit here. In Minnesota, I couldn't play at all in the off season, but here it helps. I can play in the off season. That's the best part about covering a team in and in, where, where there's good weather in the wintertime times. You can actually get out a little bit more in the off season. Where if you cover a team in Minnesota in your off season, you're going
0: to be indoors a lot unless you love the snow. Have you played with any players? Because I know a lot of players like golf.
1: Not active, no. I played in, like, the golf tournaments where, like, players are there. I played, like, the charity tournaments for the Angels and Twins before, but not not in the same uh, foursome
0: as them, no. Who's the best athlete golfer that you've seen at one of those tournaments? Who, that's a good question. Uh, I've
1: seen, like, hmm. I just went to one recently, and uh, and Pujols was really good. I went to one in uh, in L.A. or actually it was Orange County down in Newport. Um, there was a big one for that. Urban Youth Academy and in, in Compton—it's a really cool um, thing they do out in Compton, and a lot of MLB players went through that academy. But they had a big tournament down in Newport Beach, and, and, and maybe because it's because he's retired, and he's playing all the time. But Pujols was ridiculous; he was really good. So,
0: That's yeah. awesome. That's cool. Yeah, I haven't I haven't been in person with any of these guys, but I mean, my understanding—I I know that John Lester is a very good golfer. I've seen some videos, and then um, Brian Erlecker is someone that. He's been on the show, so I know Urlacher, and Urlacher plays a lot. And I've seen clips of that guy. I haven't actually been out there with him yet, but i he is a great golfer as well. Yeah, that's always fun. It's like, you're a retired athlete. You're trying oh, yeah, to look so no, for stuff to do. So you just play golf. Like, it's, oh, I mean, I, I like to be in that position where it's like, I've made enough money, and I can just play golf as much as I want. Oh, yeah. That's the life right there. <laughs> And then you could be really good at golf and then you like, it's so much golf is so much more fun when you're good at it versus. Oh, and I happy. wish I was.
1: Yeah. That's the whole thing. Right. Wouldn't that be fun?
0: <laughs> yeah. Take the good shots that I can get them. Otherwise it's it goes. So. Rhett, anything else uh, that we should be watching for any other takes you want to discuss before we say goodbye? Yeah. I mean, now?
1: The one thing is I have a, you know, I'm on Twitter at rep Bollinger and if you ever want to, my newsletter um is comes out every, uh, every Monday and every Friday. So I'm following one today. Today I'm going to be writing about Carlos Estevez, the Angels closer, has been probably the most underrated closer in baseball this year. Yeah, already worked up 12 saves and one ERA, so he's been great. So, yeah, it's a fun little thing I do every twice a week as a newsletter. So, yeah, you can find me there and at Rep Bollinger. And, yeah, if you ever want any questions, send them my way, especially on uh, Twitter.
0: How can how can people subscribe to that newsletter?
1: Uh, you can go on the website. Uh, the, when that story runs on Estevez, there'll be a link at the bottom. You can click sign up for the newsletter. Um, that's usually the easiest way to do it. And you can just kind of sign up from there. And every every beat reporter for MLB has one. So they're all really good. Any teams you're interested in, they're fun to sign up for because you can learn a lot about the teams and just get it in your email and, and read about the teams every couple of days. Sweet. I'm going to sign up right
0: when we get off this call. Cool. Awesome. Well, I appreciate so, that. Man. Oh, sorry? Appreciate that, man. Thank you. Oh, sure. Thanks. So he's Rhett Bollinger. You can follow him again throughout the Twitter again. At Rhett Bollinger, just my name. At Rhett Bollinger. Very, very good. I someone took Jack Vita. I wanted Ooh. to be at Jack Vita. I don't it was like a bot or somebody's probably wants me to course. buy it from them. So I'm just I'm at Jack Vita show. That's just okay. like, but hey, that's a that's another way I can break it. Works that. out well. So, yeah. Cool. But um he's at Rhett Bollinger. Uh he covers the Angels. He does a great job. And hopefully we'll have him again sometime later in the season. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'd love to do that. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Rhett. Thanks, Jack. All right, y'all, that concludes today's episode of the Jack Vita Show with Rhett Bollinger. It was great having him on. Great guy. I'm certain we'll have, him aga- we'll have him again sometime later in the season. Talk some ball. Lots of interesting Angels tidbits. Learned a little bit about Otani. I mean, it sounds like from what he had to say that there is a pretty good chance that as much as we want to talk about where Otani's playing next year, he could very well be returning to the Angels. I think it's almost as if we've ruled that out as a possibility because of the status of the team. But seems team's having a good year. I mean, they're five games up above five hundred right now. They're only one game back of the wild card. And I kind of like this mix. I've been kind of talking myself into the Angels over the past month as I've been watching them play. Now, obviously, there's a lot of season left, and we'll see. I mean, Cleveland still has to turn around. Um, Seattle, I had higher hopes for them. We'll see what happens with Seattle. Are they going to get things clicking? Is Texas going to stay up in the in first place and have the best run differential in baseball? I don't know. But there's a lot of fun talking with Rhett today. You guys can follow me on social media at Jack Vita Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Jack Vita Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please hit subscribe and please make sure you have notifications on. Um, That's, that would be a a huge help to me. If you guys can subscribe and uh, come back because I feel like I'm only a lot of people are finding this show when I post the links on social media. Um, It'd be cool if we could have people checking things out without me needing to post the links on social media, but I'm still going to post them anyway. Again, social media at Jack Vita show. I will be back next week with another writer from MLB.com, Manny Randawa. He's been covering the Colorado Rockies, and he also does some national baseball stuff over at MLB.com. He's been doing that for a little while. We'll talk with him. We'll probably check in and talk a little. Obviously we'll talk some Rockies, talk a little more national league next week. Uh, we've had some American league guests the last couple weeks next week probably a little more National League. And then make sure you guys are reading my stuff inside the Phillies. Uh, you can just Google inside the Phillies. It's part of Sports Illustrated Fan Nation. Every single Monday for the time being, I will have out my weekly power rankings and notes from around the league. Until our conversation next week with Manny, I'm Jack Vita, bringing the to offices.